Hi, Casey here. Before we start, our team at Pass Blue wants you to know that we're a nonprofit website and we depend on your generous donations to tell stories about the UN. In November and December, Pass Blue takes part in Newsmatch, a national matching gift campaign that drives donations to nonprofit newsrooms like us around the country. Here's how it works. If you give today, Newsmatch will double your donation up to $1,000. For a nonprofit like us, that's a big deal and will help us report exclusive stories at the UN every day. The type of journalism we do that puts accountability first cannot wait. Because if we don't tell these stories, who will? Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Filion. And welcome to Unscripted. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin tries to sell vodka and Kalashnikovs to African leaders. And we have some exclusive content from our interview with former Swedish foreign minister Margit Wallström, who is also the mother of feminist foreign policy. This is the ninth episode of Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. This week, we discuss some of Pass Blue's top stories. Pass Blue contributor Joe Penny attended the first Russia-African cooperation summit since the fall of the Soviet Union. Joe traveled to Sochi in October to look at how Putin would approach his seduction operation. And knowing the way Putin likes to project himself abroad, it was likely a tour de force for the Russian president. But we also wanted to look at it globally. Africa just doesn't seem to be a priority for the U.S. right now. But it's still pretty important for France. The country still has huge influence politically and culturally, especially in West Africa. And, of course, there's China. So we wanted to know... Where does Russia stand in the current scramble for Africa? So I've met with Joe Penny, who has worked as a reporter and photojournalist for many years in Africa, to hear more about his experience in Sochi. Let's hear the interview. I am with Joe Penny, a writer and photographer based in New York City and a Passblue contributor. It just got back from Sochi in Russia, where the first summit on Russian-African cooperation has taken place. Russian businesses took the opportunity to sell some traditional vodka and show off the newest emblematic Kalashnikov to African delegates. Russian President Vladimir Putin hosted the event and top African leaders attended. The conference took place at the end of October, right after Russian President Vladimir Putin signed an agreement with his Turkish counterpart Erdogan on Syria. So first of all, Joe, did Putin attract a big crowd? Yeah, you can definitely say that a lot of African delegates did show up, um, some 50 heads of state, uh, including all the the biggest presidents of of African countries, like, for example, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari, Egyptian President uh, Sisi actually co-hosted the event as chair of the African Union. So from that perspective, it was a success for... Russian diplomacy in terms of mobilizing uh, interest and actual heads of state from Africa, more of whom attended this Russia-Africa summit than the African Union annual summit. And what exactly is Russia offering these African leaders? So 
Russia is basically trying to reestablish itself in Africa. After all, it was a, a big power during the Soviet Union. It had lots of relations with countries like Angola, Algeria, South Africa, Namibia. Um, it supplied arms and weapons to friendly countries who were fighting apartheid and who were isolated from the West, like, for example, Sekuture in Guinea. So it's been a while since Russia has really made a concerted effort into Africa. But basically, after uh, Russia annexed Crimea, there were serious EU and U.S. sanctions that harmed its ability to do business with Western nations. So since those sanctions have been in place, it's been forced to look elsewhere for business opportunities. And one of the ways it's doing that is working with African countries. It has a host of things it offers for Africa. Um, number one is probably weapons. Um, there's also uh, nuclear energy, which a lot of African states have said they're interested in. There's oil and gas, and there's mining, in addition to other stuff like healthcare and, and technology, although those are pretty far down the list. So one of the things that kept coming up throughout this conference was that Russia signed a lot of memorandums, but what are memorandums? They're just um, a framework for future agreements. Some of the biggest deals were in nuclear energy. So Russia signed memorandums with Rwanda, with Ethiopia, Zambia, and those are the countries that, in addition to Egypt, are most developed towards nuclear energy. But they said that they signed uh, memorandums with a third of African countries about developing nuclear energy moving forward. Keep in mind that Africa has major power issues in terms of supplying electricity to its citizens, and big nuclear energy projects could be one way of solving that. But if you actually look at what's happening on the ground, there's not a lot of movement towards making that happen. And it's so far away, and there are such big projects, and security is such a big issue that it seems unlikely that you'll see any nuclear power plants besides the ones that exist in Egypt and South Africa in the next 20 years. So they didn't sign many binding contracts that say, we're going to do this for this amount of money on this in this time frame. So that frustrated some of the African counterparts. I mean, this is actually quite common in summits uh, between different countries and, and between different regions of the world. But the South Sudan Minister of Mines, for example, said to the Russians on a panel that he was participating in, I'm tired of these memorandums, he said. If you're serious about investing in my country, I'm going back to South Sudan tomorrow, and I hope to see you there soon. So that really, to me, encapsulated some of the attitude, which was, you know, it's a big, it's a big grand uh, ceremony, it's a big grand summit, but what's behind it? Is Putin really actually serious about making real investments into Africa? Keep in mind that Russia is not the biggest economy in the world. Its GDP is actually less than New York City's. So it can't really finance the big infrastructure projects that uh, China can, for example. So basically, while China is going to Africa saying that they want to help develop infrastructures and countries like France and the United States saying they want to uphold human rights and democracy, Russia seems to be pretty open about the business it wants to develop over there. Yeah, Russia framed its foray into Africa 
as a second independence. So there was a first independence in the 60s and for some countries in the 70s and for South Africa, if you consider its freedom from apartheid as independence in the 90s even. And so Russia played a role in that and they're now framing this uh, second foray into Africa as a financial independence. I mean, it is similar to the rhetoric that China uses, less similar to the rhetoric that France uses. China is interested in providing infrastructure for huge deals for resources, basically. Um, It doesn't have a big military presence on the continent, although it does sell quite a lot of arms. Russia is actually the biggest arms exporter to Africa, although nearly 80% of that is to one country, which is Algeria. Uh, The U.S. could probably finance big infrastructure projects in Africa, but they're currently not doing that. Most of the U.S.'s diplomacy in Africa is really defense and military-oriented. So I think that a lot of the leaders were were taking a wait-and-see attitude. They're happy that Russia's involved. It can help certain areas, and certainly it's kind of scary for countries like France. But it's not clear exactly how serious Putin really is in, in trying to make his power play into Africa. Uh, and I mentioned that before, you are a photographer, and I think you take some pretty cool pictures over there, and some of them were pretty popular on social media. Can you tell me a little more about it? Yeah, definitely. So the summit took place in like a big convention center, kind of like Jacob Javits Convention Center here in, in New York City, and it's a brand new convention center because it's part of the Olympic Village. Sochi held the Winter Olympics recently. And so there were all these stands of all these different uh, companies that were trying to sell their goods to African countries and African delegates. And, you know, there were stands selling vodka. Ivory Coast had a stand selling coffee. Russia had a number of different ones, but definitely the most popular one that I saw was the stand selling Kalashnikovs. Kalashnikov, of course, is iconic rifle and and actually even Mozambique has a Kalashnikov on their flag even so it is an important symbol for the fight for independence but in this case it seemed like um, a lot of the delegates really just wanted to pose for pictures and selfies with these humongous rifles and so to me that that definitely did encapsulate some of the mood of the event which was that you know, in, in other summits like in China or the upcoming uh, France-Africa summit, which is next year in Bordeaux, it's quite unlikely to see weapons actually on sale for people to hold and to play with, even though France and China do sell weapons to African countries. So that's one thing that definitely separates Russia is that they seem to be a little bit more upfront about uh, what they're up to in some ways, uh, obviously not in all ways. but specifically in this arms sales, it was right there on display for everybody to see. You know, I saw the Ethiopian uh, prime minister who just won the Nobel Prize. I took a picture of him eyeing some model tanks. Um, I saw the Nigerian delegation uh, spend, you know, close to a half hour in one of these stands. And this wasn't just a Kalashnikov, it was a couple of other um, big arms dealers in Russia. So it was definitely a popular exhibit alongside a VR, a virtual reality shooting range where delegates could actually take rifles in a pretend African savanna environment and shoot uh, clay pigeons. So um, that was definitely an, an aspect that I was personally surprised by, and I think a lot of people on social media shared that sentiment. So this was the first summit of its kind for Russia and Africa. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it's not going to be the last one. So how do you, what do you think the next steps are? 
first of all, if you place this in context, uh, there's been multiple China-Africa summits. There's been an India-Africa summit. There's been a Japan-Africa summit. There's been a USA-Africa summit. Uh, next year, there's going to be France-Africa summit. So the Africa summits are just, you know, in style these days. A lot of people are courting uh, different African leaders for access to a lot of different things, including uh, not just resources, but also diplomatically. There's a lot of uh, UN votes that are super important that are highly sought after um, from African delegates. So I think there was some frustration at the fact that, you know, how can one country call some 54 African leaders? It, it does seem a bit absurd that you can have a Russia-Africa summit in general or by that matter, a U.S.-Africa or China-Africa summit, that one country equals some 50 countries. It, it doesn't make sense, actually. But besides that, there was a lot of enthusiasm for Russia's increased presence. And it definitely matters how much Putin is willing to, to really play ball and to really put money in, in the continent. I mean, the Russian-Africa trade has doubled in the past, I believe it's five to ten years, and he said he wanted to double that number, which is currently at 10 billion U.S. dollars in the next five years. So it looks like for Vladimir Putin, it was quite a show of strength to do this summit, but there is still a lot to see if these agreements are going to come to life, right? Yeah, exactly, and I think that, uh, you know, he came off a pretty successful uh, negotiation with Erdogan in northern Syria. So in the span of that week, he had basically shifted power in Syria towards Russia, which really puts it in a strong position in the Middle East, and also um, made a major power play in Africa. So I think that whether or not Putin is even serious about investing a lot of money and challenging different powers in Africa. I think whether or not he's serious about that, even from a, an optics perspective, he probably succeeded in his mission in, in hosting the, the summit in Sochi. And one last question. Did you get any good Russian food there? So my Russian obviously is non-existent. Um, I had the use of Google Translate to, to try to find different food. The, the summit actually had pretty delicious food that was hosted by and given for free to, to journalists. But there's a lot of Turkish influence apparently in the Black Sea. And so I had some good kebabs. Uh, there's basically a boardwalk that has lots of different food. And, and it's kind of like, uh, remind me actually of Manhattan Beach in Brooklyn. But how I ordered was holding up my phone and saying, this is what I want. I want this grilled beef, please. And it worked out well? It worked out well, yeah, exactly. And I now know how to say um, good evening, which is dobre utro, and uh, of course da for yes, you know, and praziva um, for thank you. So, you know, I'm halfway there, you know. <laughs> so I guess I can say praziva. Praziva, yes, exactly. I Unfortunately, I don't know how to say you're welcome, so I'll just say that in English, you're welcome. <laughs> Those were some useful Russian language skills. I'll try to remember them. And Stephanie, Barbara Croset, a senior editor at Pass Blue, got an exclusive interview with Margit Wallström, the outspoken former Swedish foreign minister who's created the concept of feminist foreign policy. There's even a documentary about her called The Feminister. 
Here's how Wallström defines feminist foreign policy. First of all, why does it belong to foreign policy? Why is it foreign policy? And to me, it's as simple as uh, understanding that more women means more peace. We know that peace deals will last longer and all of that. Uh, there are more options on the table if women are around the, the table where negotiations are being made. So it belongs there. And we cannot have peace and security if we exclude half of the population. So, so to me, it belongs to foreign policy and security policy. And I keep saying that it is not a women's issue. It is a peace and security issue. So that's the first thing you, ha- you have to explain. And then say, what are we then going to do? How, what do we expect from the embassies? And what I found very soon was that... It it absolutely uh, struck a chord in so many of our ambassadors. They started to ask how many girls are married away before they are even 15, you know, in some countries. And and they were shocked, you know. This was not something that uh, would be announced in in a country or, or used as an explanation to why it's so difficult to fight poverty. But they started to ask these questions. They started to look at the statistics. And one ambassador said to me, you know what, we started to ask ourselves, how often do we invite women to, to our embassy, to the meetings, to the lunches, to, to the, you know, when we listen to, to sort of civil society and so on, do we make sure that, that also the women come and we, we started to look at it and really measure or, or count. So it changed their, their attitudes. And since Sweden's adoption of its feminist foreign policy, other countries have as well, like Canada and now recently France. So she's quite hopeful for the future of the policy in her own country, but also abroad. Canada has already declared also feminist foreign policy and other countries are following. So I think uh, it will be reflected in some of their priorities. I think they will continue with the women, peace and security agenda. I hope that in the Security Council they will also be, of, you know, continue to ask where are the women. So I trust that they will be more engaged on the things that really matter also to women. And considering how much traction Wallström's ideas have gotten in certain countries, people were surprised when she resigned in September as foreign minister of Sweden to spend more time with her family. She has two sons and three grandchildren. Wallström also has a thyroid condition, but is feeling better now. To know more about what's next for Wallström, you can read Barbara's story on passblue.com. Wallström was at the center of many major international events in her five years tenure as foreign minister. She was involved in President Trump's negotiation with North Korea, working closely with former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Wallström was also very outspoken on Saudi Arabia's human rights record and on Israel, and sometimes it got her into trouble. Sweden got a seat on the Security Council in 2017 and 2018, while Wallström was foreign minister. We asked her about it, and here's how she thinks the Security Council could work better. More countries are now coming on board uh, on, to, on the initiatives that really want to deal with the veto. So, for example, in situations that could lead to genocide or um, sort of the most serious war crimes, then you should not be able to use your veto. And again, it will not happen in in a quarter of an hour, but more and more countries uh, will continue to push and say that the Security Council is neither 
representative or effective uh, with the current composition of uh, the membership. But I think also what we tried to do when we were there was to show the power of the elected 10 countries. Mm -hmm. If they come together, if they cooperate, if they show their force, actually you can, uh, you can do more. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we uh, managed to demonstrate that on a number of occasions. And Stephanie, did she say what's next for her? Not specifically, but she did say she wants to stay involved in gender issues. Wallstrom has worked in the past as a UN special envoy on sexual violence and conflict. And with the resume that she has, I'm not too worried about her landing an interesting and high-level role either at the UN, in Sweden, or internationally. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, and reported by Stephanie Fillion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to PassBlue.com. PassBlue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit PassBlue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.